Well, good morning. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here this morning. Last weekend, some of you may know, our middle schoolers went on retreat to Extreme Excursion, and we are happy to report that at least two students placed faith in Jesus Christ last weekend. Yeah, we said. And in that same vein, I want to let you know that right now, 108 of our senior high students and 58 adult leaders are away on their retreat, Breakaway. Uh, if you have a student at Breakaway right now, will you raise your hand? Do we have any? All right. So a little peace in the home, but okay. We, uh, what we, want, we want to pray for fruitfulness on that retreat. The, the theme is progress, and that sort of fits with our discipleship series there, that they would make progress in their walk as a Christ follower. Um, and so if you'll join me, let's lift them up in prayer. Father, so grateful for the fruit that you produced last week. Lord, that is of you, and we want to thank you for that. And Lord, now as our senior hires are away, Lord, we do ask that they would make great progress as they hear your word. We pray that those who don't know you that are in the coffin would be raised up to new life. We pray those that have been in the crib, Lord, as they hear your word would grow in their spiritual journey. And for those who've been at the table, Lord, we pray that they would get up and become intentional multipliers, Lord, in their youth group and in their schools, Lord. Pray for Jonathan as he teaches your word, that you would give him good recall. We pray for he and the leaders that they would have great conversations between sessions. This would develop new friendships, Lord, as this is sort of the kickoff of their academic year and their year here at CFC, that um, new friendships would be formed, that they would be encouragers of one another. And Lord, we just ask your blessing on them now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, we are, as Tracy alluded, we on discipleship, started three weeks ago, and as we just prayed, the first week we just talked about the journey of a disciple. It starts with us being spiritually dead in the coffin, but when we come to know Christ and have new life, we are raised up. We are then spiritual babes in the crib, but as we start learning and we grow up and take our seat at the table where we're mutually encouraging each other, continuing to share fellowship, but then we're not to stay there. We are to get up and be, go to the stove and be intentional multipliers as we seek to help everyone else in their journey. And so as a disciple, what we're trying to do is striving to be like his or her leader. And so for us, our leader is Jesus Christ. We are striving to become more like Jesus. And part of that discipleship then is to also help others on the journey to become more like Jesus. Become more like Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at what instruments he uses to help us in that journey. And one of those things is people. He uses brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us in our growth. He also uses his word to instruct us. What does it look like to become more like Jesus? He uses our service. If Jesus came to serve, then the more we serve others, that grows us in Christ's likeness. And we also looked at the fact that he does use trials to grow us in Jesus. It's those trials where we have to grow in dependence upon him and count on him. Last week, we looked at the practices of a disciple. Very simply, love God. God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength by praising him, by confessing our sin, and by relishing his word and growing in it. And we love others by helping meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ and pursuing the lost. So we're striving to be like Jesus and helping others. 
Jesus. And so what I'd like to start with, I wanna share with you three key statements that I think if you could also capture these, it will help you as you seek to become a growing follower of Christ, as you seek to make progress. Uh, We use this in the counseling ministry, and really, I want you to think of our more than intense discipleship. That's really all we are doing is intense discipleship. So whatever, and these three key statements is really our goal for everyone, whether they come in because they're trapped in sin, maybe they've overcome their sin, but they're living out consequences. How you respond to that? Or maybe there's just effects of living in a sin-cursed world. There's disease, chronic pain, illness, death. These three key statements will help people sort of understand what it looks like to grow as a disciple. And so that first key statement is to remember, my primary goal is to please and My primary goal is to please and glorify God. Now, we understand what it means to please him, I think, how you please someone. But glorify is sort of that church word. What, how would you describe that to someone maybe that's in the crib? Well, I think two good ways to think about it. I glorify God by giving a right opinion of him. If I'm a Christ follower and someone encounters me throughout the day, they should be able to say, okay, I have a better idea of what Jesus is like by spending time with Tony, spending time with Andy. Glorify, though, can also mean belongs only to him. When something good, when something fabulous, when something great, which is of the Lord, we don't try to take credit for it. We recognize he is the source of every good thing. So my primary goal is to please God. Now, did I make that up or it's in scripture? We see seven that God is talking about he's going to redeem people out of exile. And he says, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even when I have made. We see right here that when God created those that he calls, he had a creative purpose. I'm gonna create glory. So a lot of times I think in our culture right now, people are, I don't know what my purpose is. Maybe you've had conversations, I'm resting, I just don't know what my purpose in life is. It's very simple. If we've been created by God, it is to, our primary goal is to please and glorify him. Let me give you, This little flatware, it's a knife. Some company had a creative purpose, right, when they made this. It goes along with your knife and your fork. It can be used to spread butter, other condiments, and maybe cut something that's not too terribly tough. It had a creative purpose, right? Have you ever needed a screwdriver, right? Screwdriver takes the screw in, takes the screw out. But have you ever needed one and not had one? What, if, what are some of the things you use? Right. Knives. Knives, right? Now, after struggling, sometimes it gets the job done. Typically, when I'm working with this, I hear my wife in the background, whatever you do, don't strip the screw. I'm not going to do that. I strip. The point is, this knife had a creative purpose. It can be used for something else, and it may get the job done, but it's difficult. It doesn't function. When we are trying to live for something other than pleasing and glorifying God, we're a knife trying to be a screwdriver. 
<clears throat> so we need to remember that was our creative purpose, and it needs to be primary. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he's, in the context is he'd rather be in heaven with Jesus, but he's not. So he says, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home, absent to be pleasing to him. And I like the way the three, these three translations describe it. NAS says ambition. The ESV says aim. The NIV says goal. There's that emphasis of the central focus ought to be always pleasing God. Now, we can have other goals, right? Work, school, there's certain goals I want to accomplish. But the primary one needs to be to please and glorify God. You go to work tomorrow, you're thinking about work, still a primary goal, please God. I have a difficult conversation tomorrow with someone. Primary goal is still to be pleased and glorify God, not to be but to be righteous, right? I have to walk through this illness, but my primary goal is still to please God. And it's all-encompassing. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. No pass. I can do not for the glory of God. No. Primary goal is to please and glorify God. Second key statement is I please God by becoming more like Jesus. In two occasions, but one of them at the baptism of Jesus, he comes up out of the water and a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Even I can figure this out. My goal is to please God. God's pleased with Jesus. So if I become more like Jesus, he will become more pleased with me. But here's some good news. Not only did God create us to please and glorify him, he is actually working in every circumstance in your life to conform you to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28, 29 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, called him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. So whatever you're in right now, whatever seems hard, whatever trial you're in, Maybe the world will say, oh, you've been damaged. That's destructive. Destructive purpose in it to conform you to the image of his son. And the third statement is, God knows I will not be perfect. In other words, in this life, there will still be sin, but he does expect me to be growing in Christ's likeness. In this life, we will sin but like we said, if we're, the practice is we are confessing sin, we are being made clean, and then growing from that, from, from what we learned. Last verse in 2 Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the forever. Now, I believe if we talked about this one-on-one, -on -one, you would say, I agree, the scripture just lays out what those three key statements say. But why is it for me, and I think it's probably for true, true for you, we know that, why don't we grow as fast or as much as we'd like day to day? Why is it you're saying, you know, I want, I want that to be true of me, but I find myself still getting sinfully angry with my spouse? Harsh, unkind words. I'm angry 
or my students? Why is that? Or why is it that I want to live righteous, but I keep returning to pornography? I keep overindulging in alcohol or some other substance. Why is it I want to grow in the trust of the Lord, but daily I'm experiencing that fear? Why is that? Well, the simple reason is the stumbling block to our discipleship, and I say it is the, not one, is the sin of idolatry. It is the sin of idolatry, which has been described as the sin beneath the sin. The, the substance abuse, that is the outward sign of a heart sin, our idolatrous desire. And that's what we want to look at today. If we can begin to understand our idolatrous desires and flee from them, repent and make great progress in our journey as a disciple. So that's what I want us to look at today. But it's going to be a lifetime battle. One of the things about idols, they don't stay dead. They want to keep getting up. So you're going to have to be vigilant. I encourage you to keep these notes in your do more reading on this topic because this can be critical to your growth. So what is, the, is there a difference between an idol and an idolatrous desire? I think one of the ways to, to uh, make that clear, we're going to look at one of the most famous accounts of idolatry in the Bible, but first, someone. This is my nephew. Actually, he's my grandnephew because it's my nephew's son. And when he was little, he's much, he's older now, he loved cows. See his little cow figure? Literally, he loved cows. He wanted to collect cow toys, whatever. Even when he played with his dad, you see him lined up. Cows lined up, right? He even wore a cow costume to go look at cows, okay? <laughs> he loved cows. And... He was always a hit at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Come dress as a cow, probably ate more free Chick-fil-A than anybody I know. <laughs> loved cows. Now, we're going to look at Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, the account comes when this is after Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. They've seen the 10 plagues. God has delivered them. He's taken them through the Red Sea. Uh, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. And this is where the story picks up. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, come make us a God. Now, just think of that statement. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears. He took this from their hand and fashioned it and was with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is your God. Now, we would never do that. In this case, the calf was the idol. The idolatrous desire was for safety and security. See, Moses had been the representative, and they had looked to Moses. In some sense, Moses has been their idol, and now 
And so they wanted an idol to satisfy their idolatrous desire for safety and security. So what they were doing is they were looking to someone else to provide something that only God was to provide. They had left God, who was their security, and went to an idol to satisfy that idolatrous desire. Now today, in a lot of Christian churches, and I'm glad it's not true at CFC, the concept of idolatry is not talked about much. And when it is, it's thought about as an Old Testament issue. That's when the Israelites, they, they worship Baal and Asherath and that Nebuchadnezzar guy built a nine feet statue. But that's really Old Testament, right? And even now, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we sometimes skip over those first two, which says, you shall have and you shall not make for yourself any graven images because that was needed back then. Now, we're big on honor your mother and father, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't cheat, but we don't really think about idolatry. But if you look at the New Testament, it is rich with verses on idolatry. Usually using terms like lust, sinful desires, deceitful desires. When you see that, God's talking about our idolatry. So in a minute, I'm gonna give us a definition, but I wanna first confess two idols of my heart that I have for. One of them is autonomy and control, okay? I'm an only child, no smart comments, all right? And by the time I was in seventh grade, it was really just my mom and me in the home. She worked, and so I had my own room, my own schedule, didn't share, have pretty much autonomous. Went to college, and except for my first semester, I never had a roommate. And so I just learned to be autonomous. And in that autonomy and control, I tried to orchestrate my circumstances to fit what I want. As God in his providence said, okay, you're going to marry a girl who's one of five sisters, all right? And so the merging of that and to see how they make family decisions where there's, you know, I just couldn't say, well, we're going to do this by edict. That really started interfering with my idolatrous desire for control. The second desire I sometimes have is ease, comfort. Now, I do not believe I'm lazy because my mother instilled a good work ethic. I was one of those kids that you had to do all your homework before you could play. And if it's dark outside when you're done, too bad, there's another day tomorrow. But what I would try to do through controlling circumstances so I could have vacations, date nights, four hours or six hours on Sunday to watch football, right? But what would happen when things happen, there's a, someone else has a need. It's like, my first thought is, what's this going to cost me? Plane, planes get canceled. Trip's gone. You know, I tried to control everything for this, and I'd grumble and complain. Now, I'm sure I'm the only one who struggles in this area. Hindering, how do I love God and love others if I'm always grumbling and complaining? So those are two of my idols. Maybe you're thinking of some of yours. Um, But so I want to give us a definition of idolatry to help you. And I wish I could give you a pithy one-sentence definition. And I try, but 
yeah, but it doesn't address this or this. So we're going to work through it this way. The first thing is the sin of idolatry is when anything or anyone captures my heart, mind, and affections more than God and the praise and glory of God. So remember, your primary goal is to please something or someone now that captures your heart, your affections more than God. And I added this and the praise and glory of God because a lot of times there's things we like that aren't sinful that we don't think about God. We don't see him as the source of it. I was blessed because of some family members in my mid-30s. I love it. After living in Florida in the heat, to be able to go skiing, typically I can get out there once a year. But I've learned that that is a good gift from God. Every time I get to go, I go, God, you gave me the physical ability, at least this year. You gave me the resources. The mountain, you created the snow. That's all of you. And so if I didn't do that, an activity that doesn't seem sinful for say could become an idol because I'm not treating it as being a good gift from the Lord. So that's one. Now, think through it. It also includes something other than God to satisfy desire for something that God intends to satisfy through Him and obedience to His Word. To satisfy through Him and obedience to His Word. <clears throat> for example, some people have a two side fear of man or they want the praise of man, they want to be loved by others. It's very important my peer group accept me. I'm very, I get anxious when I don't think I would be loved. God says, you are accepted in the beloved. You have all you need from me. Remember, because of what you have in me, you can be a lover of God and a lover of others, right? Or sexual pleasure, right? He, God created that. We can enjoy that within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. But sometimes that desire for sexual pleasure is, nope, I'm going outside your commands. I'm going adultery, pornography. That's when you know it's idolatry. And it also includes going to someone or something to satisfy a desire for something that God never promised you. That God never promised you. For example, a husband could say, is getting sinfully angry because his wife does not respect him. First of all, yes. Scripture says wives are to respect their husbands. Nowhere in, but that is his letter to her. Nowhere in the scripture it says, husband, be a Christian husband, do this. I promise you your wife will respect you. God didn't promise that. And so when you're making demands for that, getting angry because it's not there because God didn't promise it, it's an idol. It doesn't mean the desire can't be good, but when you want it so much that you're getting sinfully angry, it's an idol. So as you're thinking through, maybe you're trying to figure out, what, do I have any idols? First of all, simple answer, yes. Now let's try to figure out what they are. Here's some diagnostics for you. Will I sin to get it? Thinking, what would I sin to get? And I want you to think not only sins of commission, yeah, obviously, if you want money and wealth and you rob steel, that's, that's an idol. But sometimes people want things so much that they don't do the other things they should do. All right? A couple of examples. Sin of... Uh, 
Sadly, I've known people whose marriages are in the tank because one of them comes home after all day. In my, what I'm thinking of, husbands come home, they've worked all day, the wife's been with the children all day, he has dinner, goes on headset, online gaming for all hours of the day. There's no unity, there's no companionship. He's not fulfilling his role as a husband because he wants to game. College students go away to school and fail because they're gaming the whole time and not fulfilling their responsibilities. Do their work as students unto the Lord. Body image will work out and spend so much time on body image that they are neglecting other responsibilities. So will I sin to get it or uh, to get it? Second one is, will I sin if I don't get it? <clears throat> right? Think of your, think of the last time you were sinfully angry. What didn't you get? What was it you wanted that you didn't get? Will I sin if I don't get it? And in my mind, do I think I can't be happy without it? For whatever reason, the Lord and his providence has kept something from you, and in your mind, you I can't be happy unless I'm married. I can't be happy unless I have children. Nothing wrong with wanting to be married. Nothing wrong to want to have children. But if you think, I can't be happy without it, or God is withholding from me, then that is idolatrous. <clears throat> Your emotions will give them away as well, all right? How about this? You may experience extreme anger if someone blocks it. Again, I want, give it to me, I become sinfully angry. Something I want, you're blocking it, I'm sinfully angry. You may experience pride and arrogance if you succeed at it. I want to achieve in sports, at work, whatever. And as that happens, I start having this air of superiority. Look, look what I've achieved. That's become more important than giving the glory to God. Or you may experience fear when it is threatened. Right? Fear. Someone, uh, uh, a wife may want financial security and a job or is always, uh, in her opinion, underemployed. And so I fear that financial, losing that financial security. I have that sinful fear. Or you experience worry or anxiety, you think you'll never obtain it. Fear, I have it, I may lose it. Worry, I may never have it. I want a successful child. I want him to be successful academically. I want to be thought of as a good parent because he succeeds academically or athletically, or I want to be thought of as a good parent because my kid goes to Bible college and other kids seem to be making the spiritual growth, fear, worry, and anxiety, or you experience despair or devastation if you lose someone or something. And I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about uh, grief. We are to grieve. Sometimes when we lose loved ones, there is grief, but when we despair, when we're devastated, because we lose a person or we lose something so that we're not fulfilling our responsibilities, we doubt the goodness of God, then that is probably an idol. So you get in a sense of maybe what your, <clears throat> your idols are. Now, see, idols can be deceptive, right? A lot of those things 
They're not wrong in the scriptures, right? It's not wrong uh, to have a wife respect. It's not wrong to want to be married. It's not wrong to want to have peace and times of ease in your life. But if you will run to excessive food or alcohol from life, then you know there's something idolatrous going on. In Ezekiel, God is writing about the elders of Israel at the time. He says, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block, see, not one of the stumbling block of their iniquity, insulted by them at all. What we have to recognize is sometimes our idolatrous desires are right here. We can't see them. And we could take that step right off. So what I want us to do now, I want us to recognize how important it is to identify them. And then there can be this thought my possible idols, maybe sometimes I want them too much, but is it that big a deal? Will it really hinder my discipleship? And that's what we're going to look at for the next, for the rest of our time here. There's four reasons that we really need to flee from our idols. I must flee idolatry because it is adultery against God. When we have that idolatrous desire, when we want something more than pleasing God, we are committing adultery against God. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says, Has a nation gods when there were not gods? But my people have changed their glory. And by the way, in some translations, the G is capitalized, indicating we're talking about God. They've changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew, to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So our sin of idolatry really is two sins. We've left God, who is the giver of all good gifts, and gone and dug substitutes. And look at God's reaction in verse 12 to this. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. Someone once said, it's, it's as if he says, brings the angels to the edge of heaven and looks down and says, be appalled. Tony Anderson, be in control. Rather than trusting in me, the sovereign God of the universe, he wants to control. He wants to take my place. Look at this man right here. I've given him every spiritual blessing, but he wants to forsake me to pursue human prestige. This woman right here is so to change because her life will be better rather than resting in me, the lover of her soul. Be aghast at this. This is serious stuff. And so I, we need to think, what do I want more than pleasing God? We're giving our hearts, our affections, and our something other than God. See, Paul warns us of this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you. I gave you in marriage to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Spiritually, we have a perfect spouse. And I know sometimes for guys, it's like, well, that's sort of weird thinking of Jesus as our perfect husband, but we are spiritually one with him. But I am afraid that as, she, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
He wants us to be, he gave us to Christ to be pure, to be married only to Jesus. And so when we have idols, we can expect, right, that our relationship with God's going to be impacted. Back in James chapter four, we looked at this a few months ago. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Measures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. We we may even go to God. God, please give me this for my pleasure. I'm not content with what you, I want this. And it's been described to me, this is a good description. Imagine this, my wife and I have, Lisa, we've been married 40 years uh, in June. Imagine tonight, I came home and I said, hey, Lise, I met this woman. She's attractive to the eye. She says nice things to me and about me. And she really, you know, she really makes me feel good. And I enjoy spending time with her. Uh, I would like to bring her home to live with us. She would look at me as if I had lost my ever-loving mind. And she We've been married 40 years. Now, she's not a perfect wife, but she's perfect for me. And she's a great wife. After this, what God says is, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, like I said before, when we go want something adultery. It's not an analogy. It's not, well, it's sort of like, and I know sadly in this church, there are families that have been impacted by physical adultery. Parents, your own spouse, your adult children. It is the same sin before God. It is that same heart. I have got to flee from this. And the problem is with idols is sometimes we keep going back. We've got to flee from this. So the next reason should help us with the first reason is it never satisfies. My idolatry will never satisfy. If, if we could understand this, going back to Jeremiah, it says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've left me the fountain of living water. Got that picture of a spring, always running, always pure, you know, always there to satisfy. No thanks. I'm going to go dig a cistern. Hole in the ground. Some countries, they're up on the roof. I'm going to catch some stagnant water. I'm going to catch some water and just let it sort of get there and become stagnant. Pond scum, viruses that are like killing people sometimes. From that. And by the way, it's got a crack in it. So even that's not going to satisfy me. I want to keep going back to that. No thanks on this. I'd rather lick this ashtray here, right? It's never going to satisfy us. So my, and you think about my desire for control because I'm not a sovereign. The more I think, oh, let me see if I can control people and circumstances. It's never going to be enough. You know, I I want that time of peace and ease and comfort, but it's never enough. And you're just like, oh, well, that was so good. Now I want something more rather than saying I can rest and delight in the Lord and thank you. 
I'm here where I enjoy your created blessings. But if I want it all about that, I'm never going to be satisfied. I think what we all need to do, or what we need to remember is, let's go back to Ephesians 1. Remember, if you were here then, we are all saints. You remember what our name is? Somebody. Oh, you forgot carfish already? We are saying, if you look at Ephesians, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are informed, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we are heirs to an eternal kingdom with our Savior. And right now, the throne of grace, 24-7 in our time of need. Why would we leave that for a broken sister? It'll never satisfy. But in Christ, through his, his life, death, and resurrection, we have every spiritual blessing. So let's remember that and flee from that. Because when we don't, we live like unbelievers. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 4.19. And they, unbelievers, have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's not enough. I need more. I need more. We don't want to live. We don't want to live like the unbeliever. We also need to flee from our idolatry because it will fracture. It fractures my relationships. Remember, the practice of a disciple is we're loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We're committing adultery against him. And then we're also to love others, and our idolatry will fracture those relationships. Back in James, it says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? Again, translated as desires, lusts, passions. They wage You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Right? Because of our desires, we will fight, we'll quarrel, we'll have murderous thoughts, hateful thoughts, because we're not getting what we want. Our idolatry will call on somebody else. Because, not like what we're saying, we don't want God's kingdom to come. We want our kingdom to come here on earth. And if you stand in my way, you better watch out. Because your idols will change the way you treat and view people. Think about some of your emotions around people. Have you been in situations where you find yourself growing frustrated with the people around you? It's just sort of that low burn. Or... Someone's in your way. Someone's in your space. Somebody's driving on your sovereign asphalt, right? You know, I have a right to all green lights and no one going under the speed limit in front of me. Or no one trying to merge in front of me after I've waited patiently in line in this lane, right? You're thinking, you know what? If you help me get what I want, I'm happy with you. You around. But if you're blocking me, you're my enemy. I'm frustrated with you. I'll shun you. I don't want anything to do with you. Or maybe you're in a circumstance right now where you're thinking whether or not today is a good day or not is based upon how someone else acts or reacts. It's a good day if, this, if my teenager does this. It's a bad day if she does this. That, that, is, that person is your idol you have peace and comfort based upon what someone else does or doesn't do. And those, and 
person is actually the idol. So here's an example. Today, a husband has a desire for sexual pleasure, and if his wife is accommodating, he's pleased with her. But if she isn't, and he grows angry, maybe sullen, pouts, and goes looking for another idol to satisfy that desire. Or maybe the wife wants intimate If he participates, she treats him well. If not, she shuns him, maybe goes and looks to a different idol to satisfy that desire or to escape from her disappointment. See, if we don't flee from our idol, we will turn our desire into a hostile demand that causes us to doubt God and to hate others. Let me walk through this. This is sort of a chart I got. <clears throat> it's from Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments of the, in the Redeemer's Hand. But we start out with desires. I wish. Let me just, when you have a desire, a wish, right then and there, I encourage you, lift that to the Lord. Lord, I wish, is this to your glory, Lord? I wish. But for a lot of us, we have this wish and it becomes a demand. You know what? I will have this. It's my, I, I will, I've worked all week. I will watch football from 11 a.m. to Sunday. I will. You know what? I need it. After all, I've been, I, need, I must have this. This is where it's good to go back to our three key statements. Your primary goal is to please and glorify God. And he says he's given us everything we need. He says the scripture is sufficient to tell us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right and have to stay right. So in our world, where we have throw around the, the word need, God has already given you everything you need to fulfill your primary goal of pleasing him. And no person or circumstance can stop you. Never say when you don't please God, someone kept me from doing that. But we say, I wish, I will, and then it becomes a demand. I must have this. And with our re in our relationships, you should. If you love me, if you care for me, you should let me have this. If you are, you should do this for me. If you're a good youth pastor, this is what you should do for my teenager. All right? But then there's disappointment. Well, you didn't. And therefore, there's punishment. Because I will. I'll get angry. I, I, I won't fulfill my responsibility towards you because I've made that idolatrous desire go from just a wish to a demand. And so I've not represented Jesus well, and I've not loved others thing about the Lord, and you see in Jeremiah 2, is we have everything we need from him. We can be a getter from God and a giver to others. But when we start thinking of individual, I need to get something from people, then we're not practicing what disciples do of love others. The fourth thing, <clears throat> finish with this, is I have to flee idolatry because it will make my fight against sin futile. If we don't flee our idolatry, our fight against sin is going to be pointless. First question, we want to grow as disciples. We see it in scripture that we want to grow becoming more like Jesus, but why don't we do it? It's because of sin, our idolatrous desires. This is what Paul, I mean, James said in James chapter one, he says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So just do some reverse engineering. Death, sometimes our sin, even as believers, brings forth physical death, but it does bring destruction, corruption. Our life is hard. Well, I don't want to do that, so therefore I need to have the sin that resulted in it, but to avoid the sin, I need to put off that idolatrous desire. See, the world, they can bait the hook. They can set traps, but we're the ones that take it. We're the ones that go after it. We can't say, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil baited a hook. My husband made me. No, your husband baited the hook, but you took it. It'll make our fight against sin futile. Here's one of my favorite passages. I'm sure you probably know it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common. It's faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, remember two weeks ago, sometimes God uses trials to grow us. We grow in dependency on him. But in those trials, sometimes turn them into temptations to sin. What Paul is telling you here is no temptation, all temptation is common to man. Have you ever told yourself, yeah, but you don't know, mine's unique. This verse doesn't say it's universal. It doesn't mean everyone's been through the same thing. It just means it's not uncommon. Truth is, you're in a temptation, it's common to man. Other truth is God is faithful and in the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. In other words, there's a way for you to come through that temptation more like Jesus and sin is never your only option. That's a great But have you noticed here, is there a command? Are we commanded to do anything or even to think anything in this verse? We're not. That's where 14 comes in. All through that, and then Paul says, beloved, flee from idolatry. See, Paul knows this. He says, you're, you're gonna be in temptations. They're common. God's faithful. He'll give you what you need so that you can come through it more like Christ at the end, but you're gonna wanna run to your idol. Don't do it. Flee the idol to him. If we don't flee from our idolatry, our fight against sin will be futile. So what I'd like to do now is I'm going to have the men start. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as they're passing, uh, start passing. But if you would, uh, if I could just, um, <laughs> I don't, all right, can I have your eyes? All right. You got to have a Dougism here somewhere. At the bottom of your, of your message memo, there is a prayer. And I want you to consider, we're going to take the elements and we're going to remember the Lord's Supper, that remembering that through his life, death, and resurrection, we have fellowship with him. We have every spiritual blessing. Yet we sometimes make foolish trades. We leave him. Men, you can go ahead and we leave him and pursue our idols. And so what I'd like you to do is just as you're holding the elements is to remember, and maybe this prayer would help you. It says, Lord, please forgive me for forsaking you and going to, and maybe something's come to your mind, going to a person, to 
a job, going to circumstances to be my source of whatever. Is it pleasure, escape, comfort? Please help me not to do this, but to choose to put in the mental effort. What does it say in the scripture is true about God? What has he promised you? Put in the mental effort to remember your truth and then repent. Think and act as if it's true. We have a great relationship with our Savior, but we make foolish trades. So spend this time both not only thanking him for his gift, sacrificial gift, but help ask him to help you identify those idols in your heart.
uh, I think significant that the Apostle John in writing the, writing the letter of 1 John, 105 verses talking about how we can know that we have fellowship, koinonia with our Savior. In the very last verse of 1 John, children, beloved children, guard yourself from idols. John knew, Paul knew, we all, they knew what would hinder the relationship we have and can have because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So if you would, let's take remembering what he's done for us. And now if you would, and let's sing praises to our God. That I won't bow to idols, stand strong and worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. And I won't be formed by feelings, I hold fast to what is true. And if the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just the Continue to help us as our day and our week unfolds that you would help reveal to us where we're making idols of people or things or circumstances. Lord, we want to trust you. We want to follow you. Amen. Really glad you're here. If we can pray for you individually, we have men and women available between services that would love to pray with you. God bless. See you next time.